In your pew bottle, it's 10, page 1058. And Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed, went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put away your sword, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of our Lord. It was a Tuesday morning, just like any other Tuesday morning that I, I had experienced. I was living in the parsonage at the time, getting ready to go to class. My cell phone rang, and that was an odd occurrence because it was my best friend JJ, who at the time worked for the Wake Weekly newspaper. He had already gotten the news, and so he called me and said, are you watching TV? And I thought that was a strange thing. No, I'm getting ready to go to class. And he said, well, turn your television on right now. Something big is happening. We don't know quite yet, but a plane has flown into one of the World Trade Centers. So I turned my television on. It was about 10 minutes till 9 that morning. And once we turned it on, we saw that it didn't matter which channel you turned it to. Everybody was covering what was going on in New York. 
It was about 8.50 that morning that I started watching, and within 13 minutes of watching the television, we saw at 9.03 another plane fly into the other World Trade Center tower. The South Tower now was hit, and at that point, there was no question by anybody commentating on it that this was not an accident. It was not a small plane or a tragic plane or a tragic accident that had probably occurred in uh, the hitting of the North Tower. Now, it was very clearly a large plane, and they could see by their own cameras uh, that the planes from there on found out 757s and 767 Boeings. There was a large explosion and everybody began to wonder what had happened. At 9.37, another plane was flown into the Pentagon. And at 10.07, that morning, after being hijacked, the passengers of the United Airlines Flight 93 mounted an attempt to retake the plane that they were on that had been overtaken by terrorists, upon which time the terrorists immediately crashed it into a field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. All in all, many of us stared at the television that morning, just like many of the great events of history that we will never forget. You know exactly where you were when you were told this information. I stared at the television watching the events as one of the worst terror attacks in history unfolded on the United States. When it was all said and done, nearly 3,000 people had died and another 6,000 were wounded. Today, on the 15th anniversary of that horrifying event, I still remember the shock and awe that this could happen in our nation, that it could happen at all. I remember the sense of loss that we all felt together. I remember the unity in America. And by the way, that day there were no Democratic Americans or Republican Americans. There were just Americans. There were no Caucasian Americans and African Americans and Mexican Americans. We were just Americans and we had been attacked And there was unity in our nation. There was a desire to seek God after that event. Some of our members called me very early in that morning just after it. And we began to talk. And some just stopped by the church. And some just stopped by the parsonage where I was watching the television. Glued to it for the next hours. Wondering what what are we to make of this? What are we to do? And there there was a desire to seek God. We organized that day, as a matter of fact, as people came by, we would pray with them. That evening, we met down at the church with those that had come by and those that we could tell. We met here on that Tuesday evening to pray. And then again, on that Wednesday evening in our regular prayer meeting, we met here and we prayed. Churches all across the nation were full on that Sunday, people seeking God. It's amazing, isn't it? Maybe not so amazing. But at the darkest moments of our lives, in those moments that are the most tragic, the most memorable, the most hurtful, the most confused, the most sorrowful, the most pressured, the most overwhelmed, the most undone that we become in our lives, we want to be close to our Creator, the One who made us. We want the security to know that somebody knows what is going on, that somebody is in control, that someone has a plan and a purpose. We want to know that there is hope. In our text this morning, church, that's where we find our Savior and His disciples. Jesus is at the darkest moment of His life. This one whom we have seen time and again confidently teach His disciples, 
confidently confront his enemies, the religious leaders who hate him and are trying to trap him. He will confidently on four occasions look at his disciples and say, the reason that I came is to die for you. But on the third day, I will be raised. Now we are on the eve of that event and Jesus finds himself in the most sorrowful moments of his life on earth. And what does he do? He prays. The setting for the text that we are in this morning, we've already said, is the Passover. The the fact that there is a body broken and blood shed so that forgiveness may be purchased and redemption be offered to those who need it, to those who are sinners, to those who have no hope and no future. And Jesus is the one sent by God, the Son of God, to take on flesh, to accomplish that, to buy our salvation. And this is the eve of that event. And He goes to his father. He's already confronted his betrayer with the truth of his own plan as opposed to the evil that's in the heart of his betrayer. He's told his disciples, you will fall away from me this night because of me. But his disciples, as many of us perhaps, come to church and listen to the word of God and they still don't get it and many of us don't get it. On the eve of the event that all of history is centered upon, they still need to learn much about prayer. And I believe as we come to this text, the Lord Jesus goes to the garden not only to be close to the Father, but to show His disciples this thing that I'm giving you called prayer is a gift from God that will bring you to Him, that will help you resist temptation and help you with resolve face the calling of God upon your life and to live holy in your life. And yet here I am standing before a group of people that should be the best prayers in the world. And yet I know that if statistics are true, I won't quote them for you. Just Google it if you want to know. Most of us in here struggle with our prayer lives. Jesus is going to show us in this text that we still have much to learn about prayer. And so this morning I want to bring us to the text and hope that we would walk away from here committed to prayer. Committed to living with resolve the life that God has put before us to glorify Him in every moment, in everything that we do, in everything that you face in life, whether it be triumph or tragedy, that you take it before the Lord and face it with great resolve, resisting temptation and trusting your life to Christ, that you might live for the glory of the King. So my purpose today is that you would be convinced That your life must be characterized by prayer. That our church must be characterized as a praying church. It was providential this morning, but one of the ladies that God has put into my life that has meant an incredible amount to me. She's like a grandmother to me. She will call me out when I'm wrong. She will encourage me when I am right. And she will bake me a cake. Uh, when she thinks about me. And Jewel Bailey walked into my office this morning at about 8.15, 8.16. I'm 15 minutes from coming into a worship service. And she said, Pastor, I need to talk with you. I said, okay, Miss Jewel. I could tell that something was really on her heart. And uh, I said, what do you need to talk about? And she gathered herself together. She said, give me just a minute. This is a speech. 
And she cleared her voice. If you don't know Jewel, she's mid-90s, and she has, is as spry as a 30-year-old woman. Uh, I kid her all the time that you can't visit her because she's always visiting. Uh, Steve and I, a couple of weeks ago, were sitting in Zaxby's over in Lewisburg eating lunch, and here comes Jewel bebopping in, ordering her salad, and says, well, I come in here all the time to order my lunch and take it home, and I'm just surprised to see her out, but she's always mobile and around. She says, I've got a speech to make. Give me a minute, and I've got to get my thoughts together. I'm thinking... It's 817, Jewel. I've got to go preach. Doesn't take her long. She gets everything together and she says, Stephen, when we started, I love how she says that, right? So I've been here a little over 17 years, be 18 in January, but she has been here for many years before that. But she says, when we started, and she means when Jenny and I came and we started and began to pray for our church and all that has happened over these 17 years, she said, when we started, you told us as a church that our church would live and die on our prayer life. And we had prayers the center of what we did as a church. And as a matter of fact, she said, for 10 to 15 years of our ministry here, we had a group of people that would either meet in your office. She said, we met in your office. We met in a room over here. We met in every room. In every room that we've met in, we've we've grown and we've had to use it. And so we got pushed out of every room that we've ever met in. And then at some point, we just fizzled out and we don't pray before services anymore. I know that we have two services, but we need a group of people that are praying for you as you preach, that are praying for our people as they gather, that are praying for this church. And I said, Miss Jewel, you're exactly right. I don't know how I let us stop that. God had put it on her heart this morning to talk to me about it. And I said, Miss Jewel, it's providential because I'm preaching on prayer this morning and you're pushing me on it and I love it. I love it. We need to not only be individuals and families characterized by prayer, we need to be a church that is characterized as a church who prays because it helps us to show and to know our dependence upon our great God. And so let's go to the text and see what we learn from our Savior about prayer. There are two basic movements in the text as you've heard it read. Jesus is in the garden with his disciples and he has an interchange with them around prayer. And then Jesus and the disciples, beginning in verse 47, are met by Judas and the religious leaders and uh, the results of that prayer. So here's where we're going. Prayer is preparation for the calling of God on your life to live holy in your life. Life And so, as we consider this text, I want you to know we'll spend most of our time in the first part of the text considering what we can learn from our Savior about prayer. And so I want to tell you up front, prayer is the gift of God. It is the means by which God prepares us to live out His plan in our lives. Prayer is preparation for your life. So, in the context of this text, they have finished the supper. That is the Lord's Supper. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper where he's, he's foreshadowed what is getting ready to happen. He's shown them the substance of uh, the cross. And they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And on the way, he tells the disciples on the way to pray, he tells them that they all will fall away this night. They all, even though the text highlights Peter, at the end of the last verse, in verse 35, we saw that they all responded just like Peter. Even if we have to die, we will not deny you. 
So Jesus warns them of sin that is to come, of temptation that is about to face them. And they say, we have the strength and the power. We will die before we deny Jesus. And so they get to the garden. Jesus then uh, instructs the disciples to stay there. He takes three of them with him a little farther, James, uh, John, and Peter. These are the same ones that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He brings them, perhaps for companionship, camaraderie, perhaps he needs someone with him in those darkest moments to support and encourage him. He just wants somebody around him to watch and pray with him. He takes them a little further and he says, beginning in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, context told you that the Passover was the setting of this entire chapter. So just briefly, I was amazed. I love going back through scripture. I I think I've told you this before. Anytime I finish a book of the Bible preaching through it, I believe then I might be ready to start preaching through that book. So as I've studied, I always find new things. Last week as I was reading uh, in the Passover, I saw uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12 that is about the Passover. Verse 42 in that chapter says that the Passover was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of Egypt. So on the night that the death angel would Come, the Bible says it was a night of watching by the Lord. And then it goes on to say, so this same night, by the way, this is that night, right? So this is the night they celebrated the Passover with Jesus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 42 says, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of God. So the disciples were already set up on a Passover night to do the memorial celebration of God's deliverance of them. And Exodus 12, 42 calls it a night of watching. And Jesus goes out to the garden because he is getting ready to be slaughtered as the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb for us. And on that night of watching, he calls them to watch. A little later, he's going to call them to watch again and pray. And yet they can't even do that. We begin to learn about prayer here by Jesus. He goes a little farther in verse 39. He falls on his face and prays. Jesus' prayer is exemplary for us and it's instructive for us as we learn about the precious gift of prayer given to us by God. So I want to make four observations about this prayer Prayer as we see it in the garden. This is not comprehensive, but it is to help us learn from Jesus in his prayer in the garden and how you and I can pray and learn about prayer. Statement number one, if you have a pencil, I would encourage you to write it down. There's a place on your bulletin to write notes. Just write these four statements down, then listen as we go through the Word of God and go back, read through this, study it, and let God convince you of and teach you how you're to use the gift of prayer. Statement number one, prayer is is the gift of God through which we express ourselves to God. Prayer is the gift of God through which we express ourselves to God. Look at verse 39 as he begins his prayer in verse 39. The Bible says uh, that Jesus fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Now that's an interesting statement from the Savior who on four occasions unequivocally says to the disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, killed, and on the third day I'll be raised. He has with confidence told them, not alluded to, but told them outright, I am going to be killed. And so that confidence, now we come to this passage of Scripture where we find church, Jesus saying, Lord, if there is any other way. If you have another way of accomplishing your will, of bringing about salvation, can it be? Jesus is expressing the emotion of sorrowfulness that, by the way, Matthew has not shown us these emotions in Jesus, but Jesus says here to his disciples, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. That's the weight on our Savior. That is the emotion that he is experiencing. And so when he bows before his Father, he says to him, if it's possible for this to pass from me, if there is any other way that we can bring people to redemption other than me having to bear the weight of their sin and die and uh, suffer and die on a cross then lord let it be let it be facing arrest jesus is so sorrowful that he expresses his desire to the father church i just want to say this to you don't don't be afraid don't back off of bringing your thoughts and emotions and desires to your Father. The Psalms give us a a wonderful example of that, by the way. You may need to go to the Psalms and read through some of them as the psalmist will express their raw emotion before God and then allow God to take that emotion and turn it to Him in confession of faith and praise. I challenge you, when you pray, don't just try to use religious language. Don't just try to use theological words. Go to God with who you are. Go to God with what you are experiencing. Go to God with your emotional state, with the thoughts that you have, the desires of your heart, and then lay them before God with open hands. If it is possible, Lord, there's the openness of this request. Lord, here is my desire. If it is possible, I would love to do this. Is there another way? This is so heavy, but there's not then I'll do it. I want you to notice a couple of things as we think about expressing. Prayer is the gift of God through which we express ourselves to God. Notice Jesus' first words. This is the first echo of the Lord's Prayer that we have. So in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches His disciples how to pray. In this prayer, He exemplifies prayer. So how does He begin? My Father. He does the same thing a little later in verse 42. My Father. He addresses God in echoes of how he taught us to pray, our Father. He says, my Father. I don't know how many of you have children, uh, but if you do, then you know the desire or the, uh, uh, the, the sentiment that I'm about to share. And that is that I would want all of my children at any time to be able to come to me and express who, whatever they're feeling, whatever they're thinking, whatever they're desiring, and find an ear that is open and eager and willing to learn and listen to them, even if then I have to correct or change or redirect, I want to hear from my 
children. And Jesus says, my father, some of you, though, have had the experience, even if you don't have children, all of us have parents or those who have been like parents to us. And so you know what it's like to go to a parent and express who you are. Some of you know what it's like to express your thoughts and feelings and desires and have that affirmed or to have that listened to. Some of you have had the experience that you've expressed those desires to a parent only to be ridiculed put down, ignored, or anything else. Let me assure you that our Father, the Creator, desires to hear from you and has invited you to come and express yourself to Him. And so, do so. It is a gift of God to say, come to me in prayer. Prayer is a gift of God through which we express ourselves to God. Find Him in prayer. Secondly, Prayer is the gift of God through which we entrust our lives to God. Prayer is the gift of God through which we entrust our lives to God. Look at verse 39 as we read on in his prayer. Jesus had said, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, he prays again after coming back to the disciples and going back to pray. He prays again in verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus entrusts his life and his future and his tomorrow and this night to the Father. He recognizes, listen, he recognizes the will of the Father is better than the desires of man. He knows that his flesh, in his flesh, he doesn't want to face the suffering and the hurt and the pain and the death that is coming. But he also knows that the will of the Father is much better. It is far better than the desires of the flesh. And so when the desires of the flesh are clearly opposed to the will of God, express your desires to God, but desire his will more than yours. Jesus does this three times. I've already mentioned two in verse 39 and verse 42. In verse 44, the Bible says he comes back again, finds them again, and then just leaves. He doesn't say anything to the disciples this time. He goes back and the Bible says he says the same words again. There's no other way but for me to drink this. Your will be done. By the way, there is the second echo of the Lord's prayer in Jesus' exemplary prayer in the garden here. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. You see, Jesus had an overwhelming trust in the will of God. He knew this is the way that God had ordained it to happen. He could trust the Lord. Friends, I'm encouraging you this morning. There are times when your desires must be expressed before the Lord and He invites those. But you must entrust your life to the Lord and to His will. What if I, I, can't, I can't do that? Here's the way I feel. Listen, Jesus says it three times, and I've told you before these very things. Did Jesus need to say this three times? We could debate on that. I don't, I don't necessarily think He did. He's God. He knows. I think He is exemplifying for us how to come to the Lord in those dark moments and, and find ourselves praying, putting our wills before the Lord. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. There are times when you will know the will of God. And Jesus, by the way, how did He know the will of God? If you skip down 
with me. We'll be there in just a moment. But if you'll skip down with me to verse 54, Jesus asked this question, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? I'm going to do this because I know that scripture says it's going to happen. You just read Isaiah 53. We know what Jesus needs to do for our salvation. Jesus knows it. So how does he know the will of God? He knows the scriptures. He says it again if you skip down two more verses in verse 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus knows the will of God and he's experiencing sorrow in his life, a grief that's on his shoulders, but he knows I trust the will of God revealed to us in the scriptures that this is his will. I trust that more than I trust my feelings. And so he does it three times, I think reminding me, perhaps reminding you, you need to instruct yourself, you must tell yourself what to believe. So you hear me say this to you often, church. I'll say it again today. Don't just listen to yourself. Tell yourself what to believe. Don't just go to God with your desires and say, Lord, here's what I feel. Go to the Lord and say, here's what I feel, but I trust your will more than I trust my feelings. Here's what I think, but I trust your will more than I trust my thoughts. I trust the will of God more than I trust my flesh. And so God, your will be done. Charles Spurgeon, teaching on prayer, used to teach his young pastors in training. He would teach them to pray as they saw fit. Ask God for anything. But Spurgeon would end every prayer like this. God, if we've asked something that's outside of your will, please disregard it. Because we would rather have your will than anything we've asked you. Your will be done. Even if it's the cross and suffering, your will be done. Church, prayer is the gift of God through which you can say, Lord, your will be done. I entrust my life to you. I trust you more than I trust me. Here's my life. Here's my desires. But I want your will to be done. Let me make this statement. We'll move on. Consistent prayer then. Jesus does this three times. I want to say that you and I must go to him. Sometimes we have to keep praying. We keep praying. We keep praying. We keep praying until our emotions and our beliefs are lined up with what we know in the word of God and the will of God. Consistent prayer reveals a constant trust in God. Consistent prayer reveals a constant trust in God, while a lack of prayer reveals a lack of trust in God. So the question is, have you entrusted your life to Christ? And you might answer this morning because you're sitting in a church, oh yes, I have. I propose to you this morning that your prayer life reveals whether you trust God or not, or whether you trust you. Consistent prayer reveals a constant trust in God, while a lack of prayer reveals a lack of trust in God. Statement number three, prayer is the gift of God through which we endure temptation. Prayer is the gift of God through which we endure temptation. While Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, in the face of his arrest, humiliation, suffering, and even death here, he has been tempted. What did he do in the midst of that temptation? He prayed. I propose to you this morning, prayer is a preparation for the life and the will of God in your life. This passage then, church, is a great contrast for us between Jesus' prayer and his disciples' prayerlessness. Do you see that contrast in the passage? Jesus goes to the Lord in prayer and he finds there a, a, a trust in God and 
entrusting his life to God and he finds a, a, a resolve that helps him to resist temptation and go into the second part of our text and clearly go into the will of God and live it out while the disciples who had been told, you will be tempted to fall away from me tonight. As a matter of fact, Jesus has said, you will fall away from me tonight. And so they, in the midst of that, don't go to the Lord in prayer. They don't go to their father and pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Lord, do not lead us into temptation. And they are led there by their own flesh and they fall. Jesus had the weight of the cross upon him and the sorrowfulness that he expresses here is even unto death while the disciples had the confidence to say, we will die before we deny you. And what do they do but sleep? I would suggest to you this morning, while we would like to identify with Jesus more in this passage, most of us identify with the disciples more. We have the confidence in our own selves to live in a right way, and we fail, while Jesus, with sorrow, sweating drops of blood, praying to His Father, nevertheless, not my will but yours, is the one who stands and gives His life for you and for me. And the disciples who confidently say, we'll die before we deny you, are the ones that will fall away in just a few short verses. Prayer is the gift of God through which we endure temptation and overcome. Two times Jesus says in this passage, watch with me in verse 38. Verse 41, watch and pray. Look at verse 41 as a matter of fact together. When Jesus comes back and finds them sleeping, he says to Peter in verse 40, so could you not watch with me one hour? Now look at verse 41, here's his warning. You hear the the disappointment in his voice, and so here he warns them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. But the flesh is weak. A verse that we could certainly find application in many areas of our life. But here in this particular passage speaks to our own prayer life. Some of you would say, Pastor, I, I want to pray. As a matter of fact, I've, I've set my clock to get up earlier sometimes. Or I, I've stayed up later sometimes. And you identify with what Jesus says here. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, their experience was, their flesh was weak. As a matter of fact, if we go down in just a a few verses, actually go back a few verses from, no, I'm sorry, down a few verses from where we are, verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Certainly their bodies were worn out, they had had a long day, their flesh indeed was weak. Some of you would say, oh, I know what it's like. I I have the experience of when I try to pray or read my Bible or do other disciplines of the spiritual life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think we could say in Romans 7, this might be Paul's experience. But here's what I want to say to you. When the flesh overrules the spirit, I am led into sin. When the flesh overrules the spirit, I am led into sin. So my question is, when and how would the flesh overrule the spirit? Listen, the flesh overrules the spirit in my life when I do not grasp the eternal weight of my actions. The spirit overwhelms the flesh when I do not grasp the eternal weight of my 
actions. I don't get what it is that is happening. Jesus had told his disciples, you are going to fall away. You are going to deny me tonight. They didn't grasp the eternal weight of that. And when you don't get, every moment of your life is either bringing glory to God or diminishing God's glory. Every moment of your life, you're either being more like Jesus or less like Jesus. When you don't get the importance of everything you say, everything you think, everything you love, everything you do is either making much of God or making little of him and we will stand accountable for that holiness or that wickedness there is no in between when we don't grasp that then our flesh will overrule our spirit but when you get that your spirit needs to be in control of your life and the weight of what is happening is real to you you will stay like Jesus uh, praying before the Lord instead of sleeping like The disciples, some of you know this, you have been driving down the road and been sleepy and find yourself dozing and not knowing. When you find yourself, if you have been graced by the fact of being woken up before your car is off the road in a tree and you're on the side of the road and you wake up and you jerk it back, for at least the next couple of minutes you are wide awake because you realize what could have just happened. I would say that the flesh is weak because the spirit doesn't understand the weight of what is going on in your life. Number four, prayer is the gift of God through which we empower our resolve to live for God. Prayer is the gift of God through which we empower our resolve to live for God. Church, we've learned through this text that prayer grows our trust in God. It gives us ability to overcome temptation. And as our trust grows and our ability to overcome temptation grows, we will grow in our resolve to live for God. Note in this text, I don't want you to miss the the comparison and the contrast between Jesus' prayer and the disciples' prayerlessness and Jesus' desire for His Father's will in His prayers. Notice, Jesus' desire for His Father's will in His prayers leads to His resolve to drink the cup of suffering for us. His resolve, by the way, is based on His trust in God's sovereign power. He is teaching us that this trust grows through prayer. And in prayer, as that trust grows, our resolve to trust in God's power in our lives and live His will out in our lives will grow. On the other hand, failure to prepare ourselves, failure to trust in His power, and failure to resist temptation through prayer results in ignorant actions based on a trust in my own power. And we see that in verses 47 and following, don't we? In verse 46, as we end that first section of this text, Jesus says to his disciples, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so we shift the scene here, beginning in verse 47. And Judas, along with a great crowd of the religious leaders with clubs and swords, is coming to arrest Jesus. Judas comes up to him because he's given a sign to the uh, uh, religious leaders. Here is how you will know him. Maybe it's because of the darkness of night. Maybe it's because he's a Galilean and all of these are Galileans gathered around. I don't know why he would have to give them a sign of who Jesus was, but nevertheless he did and it's late at night. And so Judas walks up to him and the sign that he had arranged is he's going to kiss them. And he says, greetings, Rabbi. And Jesus says, look at his resolve that has come in Jesus' uh, uh, own life at this point. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus is 
set his face like a flint toward the cross. He will not give. He will not deter. He is going to the cross because he has spent time in prayer preparing for game time, if you will. Now is the time that he's going to be arrested. He's going to, in our text next week, stand before the Sanhedrin and claim before them, yes, indeed, you are saying I am God and I am. He will not waver. He will not turn back. Why? Because he has the resolve to live the will of God and he's showing us that we gain the, and the power to do so through prayer. And so Jesus' desire for the Father's will expressed in his prayer here leads to his resolve to drink the cup of suffering on our behalf. And not only that, look down in verses 52 through 53. Peter thinking he is great, and we'll address that in a minute, draws out his sword, cuts off the ear of one of the servants that is there. And look at verse 52 at what Jesus says. Look at it. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Look at the resolve in our Savior. Here's what Jesus says to, to Peter. Do you not think that the Lord would send thousands upon thousands of angels to rescue me if I ask Him? All I have to do is say, I'm done. This is the God who spoke and creation came into existence. And He says to Peter, do you not think that I could call my Father and say, Father, deliver me? And He would. Do you see the resolve in Jesus? Jesus' resolve is based on His trust in the sovereign power of God. So church, I say to you, you can trust the will of God. How about the disciples? They had not been prepared by prayer. They had not been prepared with, by communion with their Father here. And so what happens? Verse 51, Peter draws his sword and cuts off the high priest's ear. What's he doing? He's doing exactly what I just said about prayer. Failure to prepare yourself in prayer results in ignorant reactions based on trust in my own power. Peter says, I'll handle this. Most of us, truth be told, your prayer life reveals this. Most of us think we handle our own life just fine. We might say thank you to God. We might pray in public every once in a while. We might even pray before a meal. Truth be told, if I were to put a spreadsheet of your life before the church and you were to categorize it in however you want to categorize it, sleep, work, recreation, reading, prayer, Bible study, your time just played out there, how important is prayer in your life? I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you this morning. All of those things can be used to the glory of God. I'm not saying that you should quit any of those. I am saying that what you put in the bucket of prayer of your time reveals how much you trust the Lord. Your resolve is a result of your prayer life. Failure to pray results in ignorant reactions based on the trust in my own power. First, he was looking to fight. Looks promised, right? Most of us do that first. Oh, I'll take this. I'll handle it. Where does it end? Look at verse 56. Saddest verse we read. In this text today, verse 56 at the end, then all the disciples left him and fled. Prayerlessness ends in despair and flee. Prayer is a gift of God, church, given to us by which you can express yourself to God and trust your life to Him, endure temptation, and empower resolve to live holy 
in the will of God.